So I thought to myself, well, what would a cool podcast look like for lawyers? And what I thought to myself is, I want it to be a broad audience. I want a lot of people to listen to it. And that can sometimes be a little bit tricky with law. So I asked my mom, mom, what would you listen to for 45 minutes about lawyers? And she's like, I wouldn't want to listen to that. I said, well, imagine there's something you'd want to listen to for 45 minutes. She's like, well, I'm always interested in their sort of stories they tell in court. I'm interested about how people got into law. I'm interested to know what they do on a day to day. I'm more interested in who they are than the minutia of what they're dealing with in, in, in case law and everything like that. And I thought, okay, well, why don't we profile remarkable lawyers like Dean Sawson and start to go through what makes them up? Who are they as a person? Those are moments that I wouldn't describe as accomplishments, but to put a spotlight on them as meaningful, as saying something about the kind of community we are and want to be, and of course, charting the work not yet done. When I arrived, we didn't have a single Indigenous faculty member, for example. Now we are about to hire our fourth this coming year, and that keeps pace with the transformations to the legal landscape, but also become things that you can measure. Here's what this place was like when I arrived. Here's what it's like as I'm leaving this role. I'll remain on faculty. And you want to always ask yourself, did I leave the place better than I found it? Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? and how do they balance it all. Court is now in session. All rise. This episode of Of Counsel is particularly special. For the first time ever, we did a live interview before a large group of listeners at the Canadian Defence Lawyers Annual National Conference with the former Dean of Osgoode Law School, Lauren Sawson. Join us as Lauren discusses his achievements at Osgoode during his tenure, the advancement of legal education, and the importance of ensuring that lawyers maintain relevance in the years and challenges ahead. By far, this was one of the most interesting and certainly the most unique of our podcast to date. It will offer incredible insights on what the future of law has in store for lawyers, students, and faculty. In addition to these insights of Lawrence Austin, I reflect on podcasting since our launch in January. I offer a live audience the benefits of podcasting, how to do it, and how anyone with the motivation to start one can do it tomorrow on this episode of Of Counsel. All right, thank you very much for your patience while we um, set, uh, set up our uh, stage a little bit differently. Um, I have the great pleasure of introducing to you um, two gentlemen, um, Sean Robichaud of Robichaud's Criminal Defense Litigation um, and retired Dean and Professor um, Lauren Sawson. Um, for those of you who may not be on social media, i.e. Twitter, like I am, you may not have heard of Sean. Um, you should follow him and you should also follow um, and um, listen to um, an amazing podcast series um, that Sean has started called Of Counsel. 
after listening to some of Sean's of Council podcasts um, and sharing with Randy Glass how much I was enjoying listening to them, she said to me, well, why don't you invite him to come and speak at the annual meeting and we'll do a live podcast. And so that's what we have today for you, Sean's very first live podcast of his of Council um, of his of counsel series and if i can just give you some descriptors of some of what his other podcasts have been um he's uh, you know adam wagman breathe just breathe danielle robital it has to be your calling um anita Segetti, i'm not sure if i'm saying this right I am this person's lawyer. These are the taglines to some of the podcasts that Sean has created um, with his special guests. Um, and what he describes it is, is um, of counsel interviews remarkable lawyers about their careers in law. Today's remarkable lawyer is Dean Sawson, who's here. Um, and uh, as I indicated, he's recently retired um, from having served as Dean at Osgoode Hall Law School. Um, and I sort of thought, well, he's got this tremendously amazing um, CV that's really long, but he's going to come and talk to you about his inspiration today. So instead of me telling you about Lorne, let me turn it over to Sean to ask Lorne about Lorne. So thank you very much. I'm really excited. So thank you very much, Sandra. I'm very honored to be here today. Um, thank you for inviting me for the first, what will hopefully be a successful live podcast. It's very different from what we normally do. Um, and before I interviewed Dean Sawson, I thought I'd uh, talk to the room a little bit about podcasts because um, a lot of people think, well, why would you do that, especially in law? What's the benefit of all that? So let me, let me go through that just a little bit here. Uh, as Sandra has mentioned, we've had some wonderful guests on our podcast already. Now, this started uh, back in January 2018. And if you ask what I was doing about a year ago, I looked back to my calendar and I was sitting in a preliminary inquiry on a vehicular homicide. And it would never have ever crossed my mind that I'd be speaking to uh, uh, defense lawyers today with Dean Sawson doing a live podcast. Uh, that seemed inconceivable to me because I did not even listen to podcasts at the time. I'm not sure the exact moment I got put onto it, but my commutes became longer and longer, living in Newmarket, commuting to Toronto, my office there, and I needed something to pass the time. So I thought, oh, let's start listening to some podcasts. And the more I listened to them, the more I became uh, very uh, well obsessed with them. And I started going through a number of different podcasts. And what you can find in podcasts is that no matter what your interests are, very, very specific interests, almost every single one has a podcast about it. And so you can pass that time commuting for 30 minutes listening to various topics. So I thought to myself, well, what would a cool podcast look like for lawyers? And what I thought to myself is, I want it to be a broad audience. I want a lot of people to listen to it. And that can sometimes be a little bit tricky with law. So I asked my mom, Mom, what would you listen to for 45 minutes about lawyers? And she's like, I wouldn't want to listen to that. I said, well, imagine there's something you'd want to listen to for 45 minutes. She's like, well, I'm always interested in their sort of stories they tell in court. I'm interested about how people got into law. I'm interested to know what they do on a day-to-day. -day. I'm more interested in who they are than the minutiae of what they're dealing with in, in, in case law and everything like that. 
And I thought, okay, well, why don't we profile remarkable lawyers like Dean Sawson and start to go through what makes them up? Who are they as a person? So as Sandra has mentioned, we've had some amazing guests and lawyers are very receptive to um, these sorts of things and asking to tell about your career. So we've had the benefit of um, Adam Wagman, we've had Tom Curry. And what was amazing is as I was asking people to do it, um, I'm, I'm generally a bold guy, so I started off asking, oh, I thought maybe we'll see if Tom Curry will come, and he did. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll see if uh, Joel Groya will come, and he did. And now I am way too confident for my own good. I started saying, well, maybe Justice Cromwell from the Supreme Court, sure enough. So don't be surprised if some of you start to get emails from me asking to participate. And so it's been really great because lawyers are willing to put their time into this and we've been doing this. So you might be asking yourself, well, is there a podcast out there for um, insurance? And uh, I would say yes, because there's a podcast about everything. But the first thing you need to understand that you have to make sure that you're communicating something that people want to listen to. And when you're targeting your audience, when you're asking yourself, what is the audience about? Don't, you don't have to try and appeal to everyone. That was somewhat my intent with, with Of Counsel, but that certainly doesn't have to be the case with all podcasts because it's the value of your audience, not the breadth. And so the first question I think you have to ask yourself is define your audience, um, develop a format and stick with it, invest in good audio equipment, preparation, post-production and publish. Now, I'm gonna go through this quickly because I wanna sit down and talk to Dean Sawson uh, as quickly as possible, but I'm saying this only because if you think you have a cool idea for a podcast, trust me, it does not take much to start. Like I said, one year ago, I didn't even listen to podcasts. In January, I just launched the first one after learning things for maybe a week or so, and now we're at close to 100,000 downloads uh, of listening about lawyers. So. When you think to yourself, well, you know what, it would be cool if we could just talk for 15 minutes about uh, damages cases that have come out for the week. Trust me, you're going to have listeners. Or we're gonna talk about some Supreme Court of Canada decisions that come out. You will have listeners and that will generate into further um, opportunities and lots of cool knowledge yourself that you'll come to learn. So who's your audience? Um, you have to be specific because if you're going to try and appeal to everyone, you have to compete with 525,000 active shows with over 18.5 million episodes. So if you do something hyper-specific like Canadian insurance law, there probably isn't much of competition. So don't be afraid to overly specify those sorts of things. Um, so be specific. And then you have to ask yourself as far as the format, what do you want it to be? Do you want it to be interview-based? Do you want it to be a monologue? Do you want it to be news? There really is no right answer to how to podcast. It just has to be interesting. So every format correct, except one is inconsistent. So if you look at television shows, for example, there's television shows about everything, but what list, uh, viewers don't want to see is tuning into a different show every time. So just if you want to do different podcasts, that's fine, but don't try and bring everything into one uh, podcast at once. Uh, develop your format. Consistency is what will make this a lot easier for you in your infrastructure as well. Um, you can see too, this is my setup right here that's in front of Dean Sawson. It's just a recorder, two mics, and that is literally all it takes and a little bit of know-how. Uh, the overall cost, you're probably looking at about $1,000. So as you can see, I'm trying to convince you guys to start podcasts because I think you're going to really get a lot out of it if, if some of you do decide to take that initiative. And you're going to have a lot of people approaching you and saying, hey, do you want to come speak at a conference because we liked your podcast? Trust me, it happens. So. Um, 
So, and the other thing, post-production can get a little bit tricky. If you like that and you're techie, then you can learn it. Um, you can even get free software. Uh, the two main softwares are Audacity, which, are, which is free, and then the other one is Adobe. Uh, if, if I'm sort of going over your head now at this point in time, don't worry about it, because there's a lot of younger people who are tech-savvy who will say, you know what, I'll do this for you for 100 bucks an episode or next to nothing, or sometimes free because they're a student trying to gain knowledge. Um, so you can reach out and find that. And then once you've done all that, all you have to do is sign up like you would an email account and you post your um, podcast, it goes live, and then the magic begins. Next thing you know, you're sitting beside uh, the Dean of Osgood asking questions. So on that note, I'm going to get my questions, which I should have got out earlier. Bear with me. All right. Okay. So welcome, Dean Sawson. Thank you so much for coming. All right. So this is our, our first live podcast. Usually I've got someone here watching audio levels, but... Today we'll just make do. So, uh, as I was saying, you know, we we try and um, profile remarkable lawyers, and uh, Dean, you're certainly no exception. You serve. No, you usually start with a very snazzy opening. There's music. There is. There's, there's a, <laughs> a bit of a. A bit of a. I'm, I'm not, not going to get that. Mm. Well, is anyone prepared to uh, maybe hum a tune or something <laughs> like some epic uh, intro music? <laughs> mm. <laughs> we'll do it in post production. We're going to do the live part now, but. You'll get your intro, don't you worry. Um, so Dean uh, Sawson served at Osgood Law School from 2010 to 2018. He graduated from Osgood in 92, where at the same time he worked on a PhD in political science from U of T that he obtained in 93, uh, awarded both an LLM and JSD from Columbia before transitioning into legal academics starting at U of T. You're a professor of the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto, a former associate dean at the University of Toronto from 2004 to seven. Um, your interests uh, surround teaching, administrative, administrative and constitutional law, regulation of professions. Um, Professor uh, Sawson was also clerk to the former Chief Justice on, uh, Antonio Lamar of the Supreme Court of Canada and a former associate in uh, law at Columbia Law School. Um, so lots and lots of accolades. I don't think I need to prove to any of you that uh, Dean uh, Sawson is a remarkable lawyer. So I'll ask you the question that I ask all my guests starting off. What started it all? How did you get into law? Uh, all right, so can everyone hear me now at the back? Awesome. So let me uh, start again uh, both by saying uh, what a fan I am of the uh, podcast series, uh, which I've been uh, following uh, with interest and its uh, remarkable uh, array of uh, voices, Sean, that you've brought together. So a huge pleasure for me to, uh, to be a part of it. And as I was saying, even more so uh, to do that uh, live and as part of the uh, CDL annual conference. Uh, and it's a chance, uh, the uh, question you've posed to reflect on, you know, what gets planned in the course of someone's life and career and what are the accidents, or at least what seem, uh, when you reflect back, to be those moments of, of luck. And I, I, I'm a big believer in the fact that it's not always so much uh, luck as being ready for something and then needing uh, that moment of serendipity uh, to make it happen. So I didn't have any lawyers uh, really in the family, didn't have a clear understanding of what that pathway would look like, uh, but I was uh, very curious and that's what took me uh, through my university uh, years and into summer jobs and just like a sponge trying to draw on every experience I had, squeeze from it uh, what I could, which I think is the opposite of a sponge metaphor, but you get the idea. Uh, and uh, curiosity began focusing for me on what 
makes the mashup between authority on the one hand, legal authority as, as I would come to see it, and the lived experience on the other. So the place, the intersection where that became more and more compelling for me was in the area of discretion. The idea that you have some authority, you have some standards, you're in a position to make decisions, but there's also that moment of human judgment, that relationship, that understanding of what makes you tick. And that, in the end, I was already in graduate school, became more and more of a focus that took me more and more to the idea of what lawyers do and to the idea of uh, what you explore in legal education. Do you think there was a point where you uh, came to realize that this was a, an underlying passion? Was there something that drove you during the, your youth that, you know, when we interview a lot of people, yeah. they're talking about there was this moment where there was an injustice that happened, that I saw something took place. Um, was there something like that that happened with you? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely when you scratch at that idea of discretion or that mix of the kind of human judgments with authority, you come to core ideas of fairness, of what you know is uh, a sense that every person as a child going through all sorts of experiences, and it was no different in my case, uh, starts to explore why uh, do uh, some people get uh, what appears in, in your kind of lens uh, to be so many opportunities, others to get so few. Uh, we were uh, you know, growing up at a time and in a place that was fairly sheltered, but even the Toronto of, uh, of that era now, you know, 50, 40 years ago, uh, you started seeing uh, a whole sense of the way other people lived, the experiences other people brought, and more and more, both internally and in that community, those ideas of uh, fairness and the frustration uh, over not being able to do anything about the unfairness uh, that one sees. Now, of course, long before law school, you don't differentiate between the unfairness that might happen in family, in relationships, in workplaces, in uh, immigration, in all these areas. And so one of the most interesting journeys becomes in a sense, dividing up something that is not how we live life. We live life experiencing unfairness in all those ways in exactly the same way, same frustrations. So let me ask you something, yeah. uh, question, Lauren, because when you look back at your uh, resume, you know, if, if I was to look at it from 93 onwards, I'm looking at a constitutional lawyer before the US Supreme Court, something like that, where that uh, perspective of injustice and needing to deal with that. Why did you get into teaching now that you were so well equipped by you know, 2005, you, here you are, um, could have really done anything in that capacity. Why, why move to teaching? Well, it's interesting, uh, again, to look to your own uh, strengths and your own uh, passions. In, in my case, I loved, for example, starting off in legal practice, and it was actually doing a lot of insurance uh, litigation at uh, what was then Borden and Elliott, now uh, BLG. And what I loved about it, I realized, was the sense of being a generalist, right? that you weren't just in some narrow niche. You had to know everything about aerospace on a Monday and how buildings uh, collapse on a Wednesday and why people uh, you know, kind of mistreat each other in their relationships on a Thursday. And I realized that that was really a driving interest of mine, but I wanted to not just explore it in a day-to-day -day sense, in a problem-solving sense, I wanted to go a little bit deeper and figure out uh, why some of the 
relationships go awry, why some of the legal problems come to be, and are there ways of creating better pathways to more just outcomes? And that takes me more to the university, more to the law school, not again to be isolated from that lived experience, but to try to bring them together. The ideas about law, law in action, to me are inseparable, and we should never look at one in isolation from another. The disputes you're all involved in never come from nowhere. They come from all sorts of relationships, cultures, expectations, institutional drivers, personal drivers. And similarly, if we just focus on getting the ideas right and not seeing how they work out in the messiness of all of our professional and personal lives, then they're gonna be sterile, they're not gonna resonate. So the law school uh, ultimately became uh, in my view, a laboratory, a laboratory for that kind of uh, exploration with a foot in worlds of practice and a foot in worlds of ideas. And I found that to be an enormous wellspring that I keep uh, coming back to and uh, have always tried uh, to uh, convey that to an increasingly um, you know, uh, uh, skittish generation, not sure about what the profession's gonna hold, uh, that if they find that sense of a uh, of a sweet spot, of a comfort zone with getting up every day and being excited about what you're about to explore. Uh, that is a quality you're never gonna learn in school, but knowing yourself and knowing what makes uh, you tick will make finding that much, uh, much easier. Well, you had a long and accomplished uh, time at Osgoode, and I'm, uh, we could talk a lot about that, but I'm curious, is there one or two uh, accomplishments that you're particularly proud of uh, during your time? Yeah, I think you know some uh, of the uh, reference to accomplishments always um, uh, you know makes me uh, a little uh, anxious because the things that you're proudest of are almost always, if you've been doing it well, not things you've been doing on your own. Uh, many cases you've been uh, there along for the ride. Other cases it's empowering a team or other leaders to do their thing, uh, and sometimes it is making sure there is uh, some either guidance or reinforcement uh, from, from the role you play. So as Dean, for example, the strides that Osgoode has made to be a more inclusive community, to be a more progressive community, to be more uh, versatile and adaptive to the transformational changes happening to the profession and the way legal services are delivered, uh, those all have been part of the journey that I'm uh, proudest of, but I'm not there pulling the levers on any of those uh, aspects. So for, just to give you an example, uh, one of the things we never did uh, before I arrived is actually look at who we are. There was no mandatory survey. There was no one counting up, well, how many people who were born in Canada are here versus born elsewhere? What are the racial or uh, religious or ethnic or linguistic or uh, other demographic factors that are bringing people here. And you realize that what you don't count tends not to count in the ways you're making policies and decisions. So just by having the first universal survey, because I hate the word mandatory, uh, but the first survey that everyone filled out in the country allowed us to say, not only here's a snapshot of who we are, but also to express our aspirations of who do we want to be. So to give you an example, I was able to say at a juncture in my eight years as dean, 
we became the first time in 128-year history of the law school, a community that is uh, more non-white than white, right? So more, and again, lots of different demographic categories, but uh, that tipping point when those who identified white went from 53% to 47% is a moment. First time we hit gender parity on faculty, right? So we hit gender parity among students in the late 80s. In fact, now we're about 55% women, 45% men as a student body. But it was 2016 before we could say the faculty was 50-50. And now, of course, uh, with more uh, older men retiring, that will uh, shift uh, fairly quickly. But those are moments that I wouldn't describe as accomplishments, but to put a spotlight on them as meaningful, as saying something about the kind of community we are and want to be, and of course, charting the work not yet done. When I arrived, we didn't have a single indigenous faculty member, for example. Now we are about to hire our fourth this coming year, and that keeps pace with the transformations to the legal landscape, but also become things that you can measure. Here's what this place was like when I arrived. Here's what it's like as I'm leaving this role. I'll remain on faculty. And you want to always ask yourself, did I leave the place better than I found it? Uh, and that works for every job, every role, every community, but I think it's asking the right question. I didn't do any of that myself, but I want to be able to say at the end, here are the ways in which it's a better community uh, than I found it. So on that topic, um, I'm curious, you know, because there's lots of people in the room here who are senior partners, uh, managing partners, and responsible for macro systems of uh, their own legal communities. And uh, Osgood, as I understand it, is the largest law school in Canada. By far. Yeah. And so, uh, I you know, on that, this management of that organization and the direction that you're talking about and taking these types of surveys to carve out these visions, what advice would you give to uh, leaders in this room to look at their own macro systems? What can they learn from your time at Osgood? Yeah, I mean, I think one of uh, the uh, earlier points I alluded to is finding and empowering champions. So one of the ways in which you can uh, demonstrate that this is not just cosmetic or not something you're just paying attention to in a rhetorical sense is to free up resources for the people who often have a real hunger to be engaged in more, uh, more activities, more opportunities to bring together, whether it's mentorship or uh, networking among uh, younger lawyers or support those students to connect with uh, lawyers in the field who share uh, some points of overlap in background or interest, that becomes a huge driver of what makes the community both more vibrant, uh, but also uh, what starts to give it that sense of movement, of change. And ultimately, a lot of this is about how do you change culture? You don't change culture top down. But unless you're reinforcing and resonating and contributing to that movement from the top in all sorts of leadership positions, uh, then the rest never will uh, complete the task. You'll always bump up against either you know, invisible ceilings or that sense that we say this, but we don't really mean it because, because look at where the money goes, look at where the resources are, look at who gets promoted, look at who's in positions of authority. So coming back to that earlier point I started with, uh, while we're all you know, attentive to law as a series of contracts and statutes and 
you know, insurance policies, whatever it is, ultimately it's all about people and their interactions together. It's never about words on a page. And I think organizations are the exact same. There are hierarchies, there are org charts, there are strategic plans. There's lots of words on the page and diagrams on a page, but none of them are actually what make that organization tick. So on that, because when, you're, when you know, you hear leadership, there's, there's often a quick reference to what the vision is for the future. And what we know over the past uh, 30, 20, even five years, things have really changed for lawyers. And you know, in, in carving out the vision for Osgood and how to equip lawyers for the future, uh, first of all, where do you see the future of law? Yeah. Uh, and how uh, did you try and equip those lawyers for that practice? Yeah, and I think it falls in, uh, first of all, great question. I think it falls into uh, a broad theme about the future of legal education and, and really, again, where uh, I think the uh, best uh, way to position those graduates uh, is and will be. It's getting outside of yourself, getting outside of that insular bubble, that uh, classroom experience that creates a lot of esprit de corps, creates a lot of sense of identity, but ultimately becomes self-reinforcing. So, for example, uh, at Osgood over the last number of years, we moved to a universal practicum, basically a clinical or experiential component, so that every student before they're getting that JD will have had a chance to put the ideas they care about uh, in action. It may be in a poverty law clinic, it may be in an investor protection clinic, disability rights, anti-discrimination, venture capital, uh, environmental justice was over 19 of these programs now with more coming on stream every year. But the idea that everyone was going to have a chance to be a problem solver, to see, in other words, the issue from the standpoint of clients, from community members, that is something I never had as a, uh, as a law student. And it's not that there wasn't a Parkdale Clinic, there were uh, ventures out there that were seen as kind of for the aficionados, for people who really cared about that, but it wasn't the mainstream of legal education. That was about classroom and exams and kind of dry problems on a page. It had very rich and critical analysis. I wouldn't want to lose any of that, but that in and of itself isn't enough. So the answer for me is get outside of that environment. So the clinical programs almost all are in collaboration with leading NGOs, legal aid clinics, government departments, uh, community agencies, they're getting students out of that classroom into those environments. We brought in artists in residence, uh, journalists in residence. Uh, we again uh, have a class on AI, law, ethics, and policy that is half law students and half computer science students from Waterloo. Uh, how do you look at a problem from the standpoint of a coder versus from the standpoint of a litigator? Uh, that's a, a really compelling environment in which to get outside of the usual discussions. That's what law school and legal education is going to become, because it used to be, I'm going to impart this whole array of technical understandings of a field that no one else has access to. And by virtue of that uh, being initiated uh, into that club, you're going to be able to hold yourself out with a lot of market power because people need that expertise. And that's what law was. Well, now anyone with a good search engine uh, and again, some uh, ability to access TED Talks, Khan Academy, whatever it is, can get that knowledge and not a bad amount of analysis. Problem solving, 
on the other hand, is something you need all of that together with lateral thinking, the ability to look at a problem from multiple perspectives, the ability to see solutions that no one has come up with yet. That's the skill set, the value add of the lawyers of the future. And you're not going to get that simply by treating it like a technical craft that simply flows from getting enough knowledge, enough information, doing exams that show you have that knowledge and analysis, and then going off into the world. That won't be enough in the future. You raise an interesting uh, point because I think lawyers in general look at their knowledge base as a very closed system, that I possess this special knowledge and you have to come to me, pay your fees, and you can access that knowledge. But what we see happening a lot is exactly what you're talking about with the facilitation of communication through the internet, through podcasts, uh, through uh, other forms. Absolutely. And I notice, you know, you're very active on social media through your communication. Um, what value would you say that transparency gives uh, people, even in larger firms, who are trepidatious about revealing the state secrets? No, and in fact, uh, when I started uh, is when I both uh, joined Twitter, started a blog. This was slightly pre-podcast. If, mm -hmm. if it had been today, I would have started the podcast. Because there's an element to which when you're, again, coming back to that uh, uh, elusive challenge of how do you do leadership in large organizations with so many talented, smart, energetic people, it's not by purporting to kind of direct all of them, but by adding your voice and making your commitments uh, and being, uh, making those commitments clear, being as authentic as you can be. So a blog, social media accounts are a way of giving some indication of where my commitments are, what matters to me. Everyone likes to say retweets aren't endorsements. Uh, why not? I mean, what, what, I, what I retweet is stuff that matters to me and that I want to convey. Doesn't mean I support everything in that article or everything on that you know, person's uh, social media feeds, but it means I want the conversation to include that perspective. Uh, and when I do uh, my own, so again, some of, about a third of which were very personal, just updates on where I was traveling, what I was up to, what I was experiencing. About a third were institutional. Here's what's going on at Osgoode or at uh, York University. And then about a third were here's what I'm uh, interested in in this latest Supreme Court case or this uh, you know, conference and this uh, initiative that I've uh, had the chance to be a part of. And that felt right. Uh, so it's not like there's a magic formula but if you're doing nothing but just echoing what other people are putting out there, I'm not sure there's a lot of value add. And if you're doing nothing but just loving to hear the sound of your voice or read the elegance of your prose, I'm not sure that's really getting the most out of it as well. So it's being in conversation that happens again over 24 seven across boundaries. Uh, there is no time in which that conversation stops. You pick it up, uh, add a thread to it, go do other things, come back to it. That's an enormously energizing uh, element to, uh, to the role and to your sense of connections. Uh, and in fact, many people I've run into who I've never met before, uh, but who instantly are known to me because I recognize uh, their name or their, uh, their identity online, uh, and, and in which the same is true. So I can, they come to me as a kindred spirit, I've never met them, but they know something about who I am and what makes me tick. Some of the pushback uh, I hear a lot, and I'm sure you get the same thing, is that by posting these insights and opinions on cases, 
um, you're devaluing your work as a lawyer, that you're giving access to something that you've paid an immense amount of money and time and effort to getting. Um, what would you say to, you know, too much transparency if that's a criticism? Yeah, and again, I think it comes back to uh, a fairly existential question for those, uh, many of those listening and certainly those in the room, uh, which is what is the thing that uh, I add, right? And if it's, you know, some people will say, well, I'm I, uh, analyzing that Supreme Court case, that's my uh, bailiwick, that's what people want to call on me for. Uh, and if that's the case, uh, I still think it's always possible to contribute to conversations without feeling like you're giving away that which is also your, uh, your livelihood. So I've never understood that as a barrier. But more importantly, uh, I think increasingly, uh, the lawyers I know, certainly the ones who are thriving, see their value add in situations and context, in problem solving uh, areas, as I said before, not uh, in simply having a storehouse of, of knowledge uh, or sort of an expert craft, uh, but it takes on its shape uh, in those settings. So to convey, in other words, uh, that you're interested in an area, that it's something you think deeply about, you're curious about, you've got things to say about, on balance, all uh, I think is to the better and will enhance the stature and engagement and ultimately the uh, career path of the lawyers involved. So um, working with you know, law students, you're you know, generally dealing with uh, a younger group of people, not always, there's lots of very great mature students, but uh, one question you hear a lot from lawyers in the industry is how do we tap in and maximize younger lawyers to uh, achieve their potential, you know, especially, you know, there's always complaints about millennials and all these sorts of things. And that's not, in my experience, the issue is more the questions and uh, tasks you're assigning them rather than what uh, they're capable or incapable of. So what have you learned with that mo motivation of the law students? Well, uh, you know, let me start by saying first, one of the uh, reasons that Osgood is the largest uh, school is not just a large JD program, large grad program, but uh, the largest professional development program in the country. So that idea of lifelong learning, that every age and stage, uh, and, and including many who come not from legal backgrounds, but you know the professional, let's say, who does uh, HR, doesn't need a law degree, but wants that labor law certificate or, or mental health certificate if you work in schools or uh, broader public sector uh, uh, settings. And so you know, having then the focus on the JD program, that uh, course of study that leads to licensing, being not the only oxygen in the room actually contributes to, I think, a, a broader ventilation of ideas about how to teach, how to learn. But when it comes to how to plug into uh, that uh, upcoming generation of uh, leadership, again, I think we have an enormous amount to learn from very authentic questions to which there haven't always been good answers. Like, uh, I understand that I'm paying, you know, everyone pays their dues and they do the, this kind of work that doesn't seem very intellectually stimulating, doesn't seem to be all the things that I did at law school that I enjoyed. Uh, how, do I, how do I deal with that? Or there was a cocoon in law school where problems, you know, again, there were mental uh, health counselors available and career counselors available and academic advisors available. I got out there and suddenly that whole infrastructure, all that scaffolding falls away. Uh, those are asking really important questions of, again, the community of people uh, recruiting, hiring, and, uh, and nurturing 
that talent. One is, uh, why are we structuring our professional lives uh, without providing that sense of intellectual sustenance, that sense of being part of a community, being recognized and valued for what you bring? Uh, that one size fits one mentality, not cookie cutter, you've got to fit into this environment. So anyway, I think that puts many employers out of their comfort zone. It's not how they've been used to organizing the progress through the ranks. I think it's asking the exact right questions. By the same token, the idea that the minute you graduate, you know everything you need to know to suddenly take uh, on any matter and uh, engage in exactly the perfect balance of, of life and work also is unrealistic. And we probably at law school don't do a service to our students by providing all that scaffolding so that coping mechanisms, adaptability, versatility, being able to throw yourself into what you're asked to do without that thought in a given day, is this exactly what I went to law school for, uh, is a flip side of that coin. So I think we need to understand what's making that uh, upcoming generation of leaders um, uh, tick, as I said, and also hear from them things that may destabilize what we think uh, makes our law firm, makes our, uh, you know, our company, makes our department uh, work. Be open, in other words, to that sense of evolution and change in both directions. And so on that, when you're uh, talking through almost like this uh, incubator of thought at, at Osgood, uh, what have you learned from students who are you know, much younger in a generation that, that you take great value from now in, in your own practice? Or? No, it's, it's uh, again, uh, the best part of being in any educational setting, certainly in law school, is uh, how much you do learn on a daily basis and how much you begin to trust uh, those instincts that are coming from, again, a generation that has not yet learned to accept uh, a set of, of compromises. And so you're getting this kind of more unvarnished set of ideas and, uh, and, and searching quality for something better. So let me give you an example. Financial assistance uh, and the debt crisis among law students, of course, is well known to everyone in this room and everyone listening. Most law schools simply say, well, we can't do anything about tuition, costs are going up, we hope government will invest more one day in legal education and universities, but until they do, this is the reality we have to live with. And, and at Osgood, we didn't want to settle for that pat answer and the unsustainable places it was taking our students and the community to. So we sat down with students uh, and we said, what, what do we do about debt reduction given the realities that we need to confront? And the answer became very much in a student-led initiative, uh, income contingent loans. Uh, the idea that yes, we wanna pay for tuition. Yes, we wanna pay for this enormous opportunity and value, but the absolute wrong time to ask me to pay for it is while I'm in school, right? Where I have no idea the benefits I'm gonna get I'm least able to cover the cost, and I've got massive debt already from my undergrad experience. So switching that around is having graduates pay their tuition when they're already in a position of having the income to do so and seeing the benefits just makes all kinds of sense. It's not like making tuition go down. It's not like free legal education, but it's saying you ought to come to law school without any expectation of paying until you're in a position to and once you're seeing the benefits. So in our case, students came around the table with faculty, staff, experts on 
financing and, and the rest. We came up with a system, which unfortunately we can only extend to a handful of students so far, but we're hoping that it grows. And it works like this. You come to law school uh, and your tuition is uh, charged notionally. You get a loan from the law school, so you pay nothing up front. And in the second year, so you graduate, you article, uh, you start your career in the second year after graduation, if you're making $80,000 or more, you begin paying that tuition back over a 10-year period, dollar for dollar, with the same uh, overall kind of cost that everyone else who went through and didn't get the loan would have paid. If you're making less than $60,000 a year, we forgive the loan in its entirety, again, each year over that 10-year period. And if it's between 60 and 80, part is forgiven, part is paid. So not only did we think that's a I wish you were my dean. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's it's not you know it's not like uh, I don't want to oversell this. It's not like everyone who comes to Osgood can can access this. But those in the highest need, uh, we started with five a year. We're at seven a year. We're going to be at ten a year uh, a year from uh, now, uh, according to our plan. We'd like to see that double and triple because all of it is based on right now speculation on what the payback ratio will be. In other words, what you spend as a law school isn't the loans, it's ultimately the forgivable loan portion down the road. But the problem is you needed an awful lot of money to start that program, to give those loans years before you see it back. That we needed to have buy-in from faculty, staff, students to say, we want to change the conversation. We think law schools can do more within our own ecosystems than simply waiting for universities and governments to try to solve this. And we add to that bursaries and scholarships and you know, we give out over $5 million a year in financial aid, leaving aside these income contingent loans. But we're also approaching tuition of $30,000 a year and we're not the most expensive law school in town. So uh, this is a growing issue that uh, I come back to because uh, at most law schools, it's an issue of contention. It's where students are protesting against deans and administration for making law schools so inaccessible uh, and getting, of course, uh, even though we may be growing in inclusion in all the ways I was mentioning on demographic fronts, when you look at socioeconomic divisions in society, that sticker shock is enough to keep some of the most talented and transformative people from even applying for law school, simply because it seems untenable that they could ever uh, afford it. So in, in that, as I'm hearing this, uh, there's, there's obviously this problem that was known uh, and the students seem to have engaged in a lot of dialogue of practically what does that break down and what does it mean for me on my day to day? Exactly. So I'm curious, and, and obviously that dialogue happened and this solution on a very practical level was delivered. So uh, on that note and trying to talk about this incubator effect that could happen at larger firms, um, what lessons could and what dialogue could could that generate for larger firms benefits and uh, their clients ultimately yeah I mean I think the uh, the broader takeaway point is how much you gain just from authenticity and transparency in other words it's the tendency is well to get that table uh, working and get everyone around it we've got to show our whole budgetary structure our staffing structure right where does each tuition dollar go we had to embark on a whole program of transparency about how universities and law schools run, what we get from this source, from that source, where the money goes. 
you know, what goes to people versus utilities. And for a lot of organizations, opening up their books like that is a scary prospect. And in fact, many positions of leadership and authority turn precisely on, I have access to that information and other people don't. But opening that up, the vulnerability of opening that up and inviting everyone in to say, you're as smart as I am, here's my world, here's our world, uh, what's the best way forward, given the parts we can change and the parts we can't? And in fact, I said, reducing tuition would be awesome, right? No one wants to reduce tuition or even reduce the level of growth of tuition more than the people at this law school. So how would we do that? Well, it turns out for every $1,000 of tuition, if you were to take it away, it's not just the next year that you'd need to replace that, but in a sense, forever. In the recurring years that you'd lose that thousand, there's a mathematical way to say, here is the value of that thousand dollars tuition and what we would have to cut on an indefinite basis, a forever basis. And when we said, what would we cut? What would we do less of? What faculty member or staff member or program or collaboration or partnership is expendable? There was a clear buy-in in the room that we don't want to create greater accessibility to a law school that is static and not growing and not embracing change and being vibrant and doing all the things we ought to do. But by opening up the books, opening up the process, being vulnerable to the idea that I wasn't going to control the outcome, the outcome would be the best idea that attracted the most support in the room, that changed that dimension of adversarial positioning to everyone having to become principled pragmatists. Right? So you'd say to the students, here's how much we have. What should the payback rate be? You could make it, we forgive loans at $30,000 know, 30, of income, but of course you could do that far, you know, with far fewer people involved than if you made it 60. Like, in other words, you move around the known quantities in ways that everyone can understand and really have to look at what do we want this to be about? What are we about? And the more you get shared buy-in for the what are we about, as any organization, the stronger, more resilient, uh, and more enduring sense of belonging, I think, will flow. So that was the, the takeaway. It wasn't really do we end up at 60 or 80 or 70. Uh, it was really about who are we and what are we seeking to do together. Interesting. Um, okay, well, we're running close to, we usually have a lot more time with the podcast. We can sit around and have a break and have coffee, but we are running close to the end. And I just want to ask you um, on a more personal level, what does a great day look like for you? Yeah, a great day, uh, you know, coming back to the thing that attracted me the most at the beginning is that sense of being a generalist, right? Of playing lots of different roles, looking at issues from lots of different perspectives. So the great day for me would be an event that started with you know, an alumni breakfast with people who graduated law school, you know, 30 years ago and seeing their reflections on uh, the journey uh, to, uh, you know, a round table with some cutting edge scholarship uh, from a colleague exploring new ways of thinking about fields I thought I understood. And uh, it's amazing how law is driving so much of our social and economic development all the time. But at the law school, you see uh, the leading edge of it. An afternoon uh, spent uh, connecting with uh, students on, you know, the next uh, project that was going to uh, take on shape because of, you know, their leadership and having that energy flow uh, across uh, uh, the, the school and across my 
uh, desk and uh, stealing away some time to connect uh, with family and friends over dinner and then an evening spent with the joys of email, uh, finishing with a blog post, that would be a great day. Does sound like a good day. Um, <laughs> what, about, uh, what about your favorite, uh, favorite uh, post-celebratory restaurant? I ask this a lot of lawyers. Where do you go after you win a big case? Is there one that's a... Uh, yeah, I gotta say, uh, you know, there's, uh, we're increasingly in a, a cashless uh, society and there's the hot new restaurant that uh, will appear and, and I'm uh, as uh, susceptible to the next to feed <laughs> off that buzz. But the place we keep coming back to uh, as a family every Thursday uh, night for the last 25 years uh, is a little emporium called Burger Shack at uh, Oriole Parkway in Eglinton. They've never seen a credit card uh, grace the inside of that place. The decor hasn't changed uh, since I was in high school around the corner from there. Uh, and there's something about comfort food with a people, you know, group of people and places where they know your name. <laughs> so uh, let me put a plug in for Burger Shack. <laughs> We got a little bit of everything for the podcast, Yelp reviews, you name it. And my final closing question I ask everyone, um, if you could run an ad on a Stanley Cup final game, Toronto Maple Leafs versus the Canadians, uh, and you wanted to get across a really clear message to the public about, I guess in your case, legal education or the value of it, what would you say to the public? What do they need to know about that? Yeah, for me, uh, the answer has been a simple one uh, and one that's uh, animated a lot of different aspects of my career. Uh, and that's that law can be the solution to problems rather than what causes the problems. And I think whether it's through legal education, through legal practice, through law reform, through community development, through imaginative scholarship, through pushing the envelope uh, with you know new uh, ways of understanding, for example, law through uh, Indigenous uh, eyes and seeing law and culture as not different pursuits, but the same enterprise of expressing who we are and how we're going to live together. All of that is about law being a solution. And too often, law is the complexifier. Law is what's seen as the barrier. It's what's seen as the burden. It's what's seen as what devastated my family life, my workplace. And that, again, is exactly uh, the cause I think uh, most of the people I respect most have been involved in is turning law uh, and that interaction between people through law into the solution to the problems that uh, we inevitably uh, face and will face in the future. Okay, well, thank you very much, uh, Dean Sassen. It was a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to do this live podcast here today. Thank you very much.